0: Done and Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Today, in our investigation, it is a journey from Katherine Graham, America's first female CEO of a Fortune 500 company and one of Truman Capote's swans, to David Bagelman, Hollywood hotshot and movie studio head. Whose criminal acts lead Dominic Dunn to getting a really big validation on the way to his third act? Before we begin our journey today, I do have a spyglass here to give some huge thanks to our most recent patrons at patreon.com slash Dunn and Holy cats, Marie H. and Beverly B., thank you, thank you for your support. I hope you're enjoying all the ad-free early goodies and bonus episodes, too. This summer, we really are going to have some fun with this idea of lost and found. What happens along the way in Dominic Dunn's first time in Hollywood that will come back again when he least expects it? When does help appear? Let's investigate. Today, we begin our journey with a little bit about one of Truman Capote's swans, the publishing swan, for it is Catherine Graham that indirectly leads Dominic Dunn into fully his third act. Born Catherine Meyer on June 16, 1917 in New York City, Catherine is the fourth of five children. Agnes, her mother, was an author and philanthropist, Eugene, Catherine's father, was a financier and later becomes the chairman of the Federal Reserve. It was a privileged and wealthy childhood, but one for Catherine really without involved parenting. There's not parental familiarity or involvement in her life. Mom and dad are out doing other things. The Myers are not as close as some other families. There are many homes that The Meyer family travels between, and Catherine Graham will attend Madeira, the all-girls private boarding school in McLean, Virginia. This is right outside of Washington, D.C. Her father is very involved in his business and spends most of the time away from the family. However, in 1933, Catherine's father is going to buy the Washington Post at a bankruptcy auction. When this happens, no one in the family is aware that dad has bought a newspaper. The Washington Post at the time is going under financially and, well, Eugene Meyer needed a hobby. So why not buy a newspaper? Catherine gets very interested in publishing from an early age. She will work on her student newspaper. In 1935, just two years after dad buys the Washington Post, Catherine is off to Vassar College, one of the seven sisters of women's colleges at the time that well bred girls attended. But for Catherine, Vassar wasn't quite what she was looking for. She will soon transfer to the University of Chicago after that first year. Perhaps Catherine was looking for something a little bit different for her life. During college, Catherine does work at her father's paper. And when she graduates in 1938, Catherine will head out to the West Coast and do a little work for the San Francisco News, but eventually will head back east to join the family business. In 1939, Catherine meets Phil Graham. Phil is a Harvard Law graduate who was clerking for Supreme Court Justice Felix Frankfurter. Catherine and Phil have a very short courtship, And it is on to marriage, June the 5th, 1940. Phil, like so many men are doing in 1940, joins the army. And Catherine will actually give up reporting to join her husband, at least until he is shipped overseas. Four children follow for Catherine and Phil. And Catherine Graham really loves the work, but she's also very dedicated to her role of wife and mother. When Catherine's father needed someone to take over the Washington Post, and after Catherine's brother had said no, it is to Phil Graham to lead the publication. This happens in 1946, with Catherine's husband getting more shares of the paper than Catherine. To Catherine Graham, this is no big deal. In her memoir, many years later, she writes, As Dad explained it to me, a man should be in the position of working for his wife. Curiously, I not only concurred, but was in complete accord with this idea. Catherine Graham will make some shifts in her world, but at this point in her life, she considers herself a quote-unquote doormat wife with no real career prospects or any kind of professional autonomy. Life does quickly change, and Catherine Graham is going to have this doormat wife thing go by the wayside in short order. Her husband, Phil Graham, begins suffering severe depression in 1957, and by the early 1960s is showing symptoms of bipolar disorder. And this marriage that was so loving, so happy, and mutually rewarding is now not that. Phil, unable to manage his struggles, becomes emotionally volatile and even abusive to his wife. Phil also begins to drink heavily as a means of escape. And when Phil does this, he will openly put down Catherine Graham in front of friends and family. Catherine Graham was doing okay handling all of this until one day, when Catherine hears Phil on the phone with his mistress things are very much out of control and at this time Phil will enter an inpatient facility for treatment and by August 1963 was doing so well Phil was granted a weekend pass which proved fatal for him Phil Graham died by suicide that weekend the following month in September of 1963 Catherine Graham was elected president of the Washington Post. And at this time, with her self-worth and esteem so low, she writes in her memoir, I couldn't possibly do it. She chooses to see her role at this time as very much a silent partner, to support the strong men around her. And her goal was really just to keep the paper going until one of her children is old enough to take it over. Even at the first holiday party of the Washington Post, Catherine Graham practiced saying Merry Christmas for hours before her speech. But hey, Catherine, now in charge of the Washington Post, begins to grow in confidence. She begins to realize that she is far, far more than a doormat wife. Catherine Graham begins doing the hiring and the firing and she will truly begin to steer the paper. She's at the helm. By 1965, Catherine Graham will make a very wise hire for the Washington Post. Ben Bradley is his name, and Bradley becomes managing editor in 1965. Not only that, but Ben Bradley also becomes Catherine Graham's business partner and very loyal ally at the Washington Post. A fun spiderweb here. Ben Bradley's second marriage was to Antoinette Pinchot, the sister of Mary Pinchot Myers. We have talked about Mary Pinchot in a few earlier episodes. Ben Bradley's third wife was Sally Quinn. And Ben Bradley and Sally Quinn famously bought and restored Gray Gardens, the home of Big and Little Edie Bouvier. Big Edie and Little Edie Bouvier being famously, of course, related to the Bouvier family and Jacqueline Bouvier. Ben Bradley and Sally Quinn buy that home in 1979. Another spiderweb here, in 1965 when Ben Bradley is hired, Catherine Graham is going to take a little summer holiday with Truman Capote. Catherine Graham is very much one of Truman Capote's swans, and the two of them are going to take a little yacht trip on Gianni and Morella Agnelli's yacht. This summertime holiday trip is the subject of one of those missing chapters of Truman Capote's answered prayers. Truman Capote writes about this maritime adventure with Catherine Graham in a chapter called Yachts and Things. This long-lost missing chapter, Yachts and Things, was actually discovered not terribly long ago, and this week are not done yet on Patreon. We'll delve into that missing chapter and all the spiderwebs from it. So here, Truman Caponi and Catherine Graham, they're intimate friends, It is in 1966, the year after the summer holiday cruise, that Truman Capote calls Catherine Graham. She's on a spa vacation with her friend, Polly Wisner. And Truman says to her, Honey, I just decided you're depressed and need cheering up, so I'm going to give you a party. Catherine brushes Truman off. Hey, Truman, I'm feeling fine. I'm at the spa. I don't need a party. And Truman Capote will pay zero mind to this, and Catherine Graham will be Truman Capote's guest of honor that November night in 1966 at the Plaza. Although we all know that Truman Capote's black and white ball was really being thrown for himself, but hey, Catherine Graham was a great person to be honored, wink wink, instead of Truman being crass enough to throw a party for himself. Why Catherine Graham? She's well-known, she's highly respected, but she's not really the envy of anyone. She's not particularly beautiful, certainly not like Truman's other swans. And at this time, 1966, Catherine Graham very much has sympathy from a lot of folks because of her husband's tragic death. Not only will Truman Capote shine that night, but his friend Catherine Graham From the Washington Post, we'll make sure this party gets a lot of press. Also, side benefit here, none of us other swans are too jealous. We all know about that party, but let's get Catherine Graham to the intersection point here in Dominic Dunn's life. In 1969, Catherine Graham becomes the publisher for the Washington Post. This is enormous. Women hold less than 20% of all newspaper jobs, Catherine Graham is really breaking some ground here. In June of 1971, the Washington Post publishes the classified Pentagon Papers, revealing that the U.S. government withheld information about Vietnam that could have changed public opinion about the war. This was huge in 1971, with the Supreme Court, just two weeks after publishing the Pentagon Papers, agrees with Katherine Graham that certainly the freedom of the press did give her the right to publish those papers. In 1972, this year, brings Katherine Graham the title of first female CEO of a Fortune 500 company when she becomes the CEO of the Washington Post. But then, whoa, we make it to June 1972, where there's a little break-in in the Democratic National Headquarters in Washington, D.C. And Catherine Graham's reporters, Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein, famously dig into that story. And here Catherine encourages them. She wants them to find the story, even though Catherine Graham is literally being threatened privately and publicly to make that investigation go away. Catherine's story is incredible and I didn't want to leave her too far behind as one of Truman Capote's swans, but for our purposes here today, we're going to advance the narrative now just a few more years, getting us to the late 1970s. Let's connect in the Washington Post and Katherine Graham more specifically into our intricate web of connections and into the life of our man Nick. This happens through Dina Merrill, the daughter of Marjorie Merriweather Post, one of the many stories we covered within our Palm Beach Chronicles season not that long ago. It is the Dina Merrill to Catherine Graham connection with a little phone call that sets our man Nick up for this insight, and it involves a really dirty true crime too. Who is Dina Merrill? And why does she matter to this story? Dina Merrill is the daughter of Marjorie Merriweather Post. She's a famous actress as well. Dina marries for the second time in 1966 to actor Cliff Robertson. And it is Cliff Robertson who is involved unwillingly and unknowingly into a pretty big Hollywood scandal. What's the scandal? What's the crime? It's embezzlement by one of the major studio heads, his name is David Bagelman. And here's the thing, everyone in Hollywood knows it's happening, but no one is talking about it. It's super hush-hush, until Dina Merrill, a little upset that her husband is all part of this nonsense, calls her good friend, Catherine Graham, the publisher of the Washington Post. Dina Merrill recalls, Cliff took the telephone and told the whole story, and Kay put an investigative reporter on it, and then it really became public. Holy cats, this story. Okay, so who is David Bagelman? The guy at the center of this whole story. And what crimes does he commit, and how does Dominic Dunn get slung up in the middle of it? David Bagelman, who by this time the scandal is heated up that no one's talking about, is the head of Columbia Pictures. But back in the early days, early 1960s, David Bagelman was the agent for Barbara Streisand. She was at that time represented by Creative Management Associates. This is CMA. And at the time, CMA was David Bagelman and Freddie Fields. Nowhere near the conglomerate that CMA would become in the future. David Bagelman, big-time agent. He's a mover and a shaker in Hollywood. In between (laughs) 1973 and 1978, David Bagelman, for reasons that no one really knows, embezzles $61,000 from Columbia Studios. Now, David Bagelman, head of Columbia, is making $200,000 a year, which today seems a little laughable probably to current studio heads, but alas, at the time, David Bagelman decided that embezzlement was the thing he wanted to do. Where does Cliff Robertson get slung up in all of this? Well, it's Cliff Robertson's name that David Bagelman signs to one of these forged checks. Cliff Robertson finds out about his name on one of these checks to the tune of $10,000, Because, right, one day the IRS calls Cliff Robertson looking for the taxes on that money, the funds that Cliff had received, and Cliff Robertson has no idea what the IRS is talking about. Cliff goes to the studio. David Bagelman says, oh, yeah, an intern forged that check. But alas, with a little bit of research by Cliff Robertson's accountant, It is revealed that in fact David Bagelman cashed that $10,000 check and converted it to traveler's checks. Cliff Robertson contacts the police with this information. Columbia Studios suspends David Bagelman for two months and just kind of wants everybody to forget about it. David Bagelman is reinstated two months later saying, Oh, I paid that money back. But the board of Columbia Pictures isn't cool with this at all. People are leaving the studio. There's a huge shakeup in the organization because of David Bagelman. Why even keep David on? Why does the studio think they need him so badly? Well, David Bagelman has brought Columbia, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Kramer vs. Kramer, and Shampoo Columbia really was bottoming out at the time, and David Bagelman has taken them from pretty darn broke to pretty profitable. No one's super keen on moving David out of the studio just yet. It will take about a year to get David out of Columbia, but don't worry about David. He's going to go on to many other roles in Hollywood with very little consequence. Because, again, no one's talking about David Bagelman's crimes. It's very hush-hush. This is when Dina Merrill calls her friend Kay Graham like somebody maybe should do something about this. For the criminal part of his charges, David Bagelman pleads no contest and is fined $5,000. He's put on three years probation. There is a public service announcement for drugs and alcohol awareness. He makes for community service. David Bagelman will also make a documentary called Angel Dust about the dangers of PCP. At this time, there aren't too many consequences really for David Bagelman. After getting fired from Columbia in 1980, MGM will hire David Bagelman to run their studio, just as they're about to make Poltergeist which will be Dominic's daughter's Dominique's last film role. Intersecting right at this time, 1981, David Bagelman's wife, Gladys, has co-authored a book. This book is called New York on a $1,000 a Day Before Lunch. And there's this super ritzy launch party in Hollywood to celebrate this up-and-coming book release. And all of Hollywood has turned out. All of the big players and all of their wives have come to this book premiere to laud this book by David Bagelman's wife, Gladys, slung up still in all this scandal. Someone else is at that book launch as well, our man, Nick. There's an incredible lecture that Dominic Dunn gives for the American Academy of Arts and Sciences It's so rich in detail and has so many scoops. This 20 minutes is truly incredible. And Dominic Dunn spends a little bit of time talking about this particular story and the incredible coincidence that leads him one step further into his third act. So what's happening with our man Nick in 1980-1981? He has crashed and burned in Hollywood after quite the... 25-year ride. Dominic Dunn leaves Hollywood with a fairly major drug and alcohol dependency. He's gone to that Oregon cabin to get his life together to learn how to write to get sober. Dominic Dunn gets that letter of encouragement from Truman Capote. And see, Dominic Dunn knows and says, about Hollywood, they will forgive you anything but failure and wowza. Dominic Dunn has failed out of Hollywood in spades, but this is really where it gets interesting. Dominic Dunn says about this Hollywood time, I had a wonderful time, and I also had a rotten time as the years went on, but I am a great believer in the inner voice. I believe in listening. A little voice was saying to me, this isn't it, this isn't it. Meaning what I was doing with my life, that there was more that I could get out of myself than I was getting. So here, Dominic Dunn has bottomed out, taken the time to be alone, to spend some time learning who he was, and has come to the realization, as we all do, that the reason that it all didn't work out was all on him. It wasn't on anyone else. He had brought everything onto himself, being the creator and the playwright of his own failure. And this is where I think it gets even more magical, friends. I'm going to use a quote here from literary giant Tennessee Williams, talking to James Grissom, that I believe once I get through it and read it, you're going to understand why I'm dropping this little Word anchor of delight right here. Answering universal existential questions, Tennessee Williams says, I don't know what to tell you. A statement is easy, but here it is. Be yourself. Try to matter. Be a good friend. Love freely, even if you are likely, almost guaranteed, to be hurt, betrayed. Do what you were created to do. You'll know what this is because it is what you keep creeping up to, peering at, dreaming of. Do it. If you don't, you'll be punching clocks and eating time, doing precisely what you shouldn't. And you'll become mean, and you'll seek to punish any and all who appear the slightest bit happy the slightest bit comfortable in their own skin, the slightest bit smart. Cruelty is a drug as well, and it is all around us. Don't imbibe. Try to matter. Try to care. And never be afraid to admit that you just don't know. You just don't fucking know how you're going to make it. That's when the help, the human and the divine help, shows up. And holy cats, does it ever. In 1981, Dominic Dunn is at this book release party for David Bagelman's wife. And here it really occurs to Dominic Dunn. After watching all of this, begins to really click his ideas on justice, and what a quest for justice might be. Watching this scene, it occurs to Dominic Dunn that truly, when a powerful person is in trouble, the ranks close around that person. Here is David Bagelman, in the middle of the biggest scandal in Hollywood no one ever mentions, still employed, all of Hollywood has showed up for this big book launch for his wife. At this launch, Dominic Dunn is about to head on over up to New York City, but here are Catherine Graham's reporters. Dominic Dunn recognizes one of those journalists as the college roommate of one of his brothers. And this is how it happens, friends. Dominic Dunn says, For 10 days, I hung out with these guys and got a charge that I had lost in the picture business. Dominic Dunn is the one feeding all the inside intel to Catherine Graham's reporters. Dominic Dunn knows every player in the scene, now and from the last 25 years back in his life. Dunn recalls this is when he thinks, I could do this. I'm never going to be a George Lucas. I'm never going to hit that level. I'm B-level. And here's the thing, y'all, this is really it. Dunn says, and yet I knew there was something in me that I hadn't found yet. And if you have that feeling about yourself, that you think there is something that you can do and do and you go after it, pursue it, hang on to it, grab it, tackle it, and stick with it because one day it's going to come to you. And golly, does it come to Dominic Dunn? This twist of fate is going to send him bravely into his third act, knowing something more was out there for him. Dominic Dunn's investigative inside leads to a book all about the David Bagelman scandal called Indecent Exposure by David McClintick. This is released in 1982. What happens to the players in this story? In 1982, David Bagelman will move on to United Artists until he branches out into his own Gladded entertainment, making Mr. Mom and Mannequin 2. David Bagelman will bottom out, though, with bankruptcy, owing more than $4 million to all kinds of folks. In that book, Indecent Exposure... David Bagelman will say that he knew his check scheme was inept, certainly, <laughs> but then says I wanted to get caught. Bagelman will go on to say, I doubt the district attorney can give you one name of anyone who did what I did who was indicted like I was. Good Lord, so persecuted David Bagelman, all because of one little phone call from Dina Merrill to Katherine Graham to get the inside scoop. David Bagelman will die by suicide in August of 1995. Cliff Robertson, for his trouble, will be blackballed from Hollywood for a number of years. He and Dina Merrill will divorce in the late 1980s. As for our doormat no more wife, Catherine Graham will remain CEO of the Washington Post until 1991, and in 1998, Catherine Graham wins a Pulitzer Prize for her memoir, Personal History. I will give a big recommendation on her memoir, Personal History, friends. If you can get your hands on it, she really is a fascinating character. Catherine Graham will pass away in July of 2001, three days after taking a fall on a sidewalk in Sun Valley, Idaho. Catherine Graham was 84 years old. At the time of her passing, her funeral was held at the Washington National Cathedral with President George W. Bush posthumously awarding Catherine Graham the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2002. In that same year, Catherine Graham was also inducted into the National Women's Hall of Fame. We are not quite done yet with David Bagelman in this summer's investigation. There is a reason. I believe that Dominic Dunn is delighted to turn his early quest for justice onto David Bagelman at this time, but that is a story coming in a future episode. Thank you, investigators, for joining me for today's Done and Done. I really do appreciate your support in all the ways for listening, for telling your friends, for your kind reviews and emails, for your Patreon support as well. Our bonus Not Done Yet episode this week will center around Truman Capote and Catherine Graham and that recently discovered chapter, Yachts and Things. You can check that out, as well as early and ad-free episodes at patreon.com slash done. Always something shaken around here. We will be back next week with our continuing investigation, looking at all these threads of Lost and Found. Until we meet again then, friends, thank you again for joining me today. And as always, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Dun and Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone at gmail.com